The observation was made that when a Tesla drives down the street and its machine vision detects a pothole and dodges around it, that's an impressive, you know, stupid technology trick. But the fact that the next Tesla that drives down the street doesn't need to see the pothole because it already knew about it. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking the sweat. Well, hi, this is Jeff Deverter with Clown Talk. Now, the voice you just heard was from Peter Coffey. Now, Peter is the Vice President of Strategic Research over at Salesforce.com. Now, today's conversation, Peter and I discuss so many aspects of work in the digital world and the challenges of it in this COVID-19 reality. And we even touch on what it might look like to eventually go back to the office or not. Now, before I give too much away, let's jump in. Now, remember, after this episode, we have some information for you, like always, and a preview of our next episode of Clown Talk. So be sure and stick around. Welcome to Clown Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. Well, hello, everybody. It's Jeff Deverter with Cloud Talk again. And boy, am I excited about our conversation today. Today, I have with me Peter Coffey, who is the VP of Strategic Research over at Salesforce. And today, we're going to talk about what does, now we're not going to say return to work because that implies we've been sitting home watching Netflix the entire time. But what we're going to do is we're going to reopen the office and what all of that actually means. So Peter, I'm so glad you're here. Why don't you introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of background on who you are, kind of what you're doing today and, and the like. So Peter, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you today. I've been with Salesforce now for 13 years. I think I was somewhere around number 2000 at the company back in 07. When we were only doing sales support and had a nascent platform business. And I believe I may have been the first person in the company to have the word platform in my job title, which was originally head of platform research. Now, of course, the Salesforce platform is the numerical majority of the machine cycles that we serve. In fact, the majority of the calls that are made to our back end are made through applications written by others. So we're really a platform company with a very strong sales service and marketing business kind of in the same way that Microsoft is a platform company that also sells a little thing called Office. And understanding that relationship, understanding the nature of, of our being our own most aggressive consumer of our platform is an important understanding for what the relationship of the platform business to our bread and butter of sales, service, marketing, analytics, increasingly B2C and digital customer engagement is really what we're all about. So I spend most of my time going out into the world and finding out what's happening in three different buckets, either things that people didn't know Salesforce did, and that's a communication challenge, or things that they think they need from IT that I have to explain to them are really just things that you used to need in an old world of operating your stuff, or the things that are just genuinely new transformation opportunities. Digital transformation is a wonderful phrase except for the noun and the adjective, because digital makes it <laughs> If it weren't like for that, it'd be all good. Yeah, it makes it sound as if technology adoption is the hard part, when that's really essentially the putting on your running shoes to start running the race part. And the other problem with the word transformation is that it implies there's an initial state and an end state, and once you get to the end state, you're good. Well, no, because the end state is a state of continuous transformability. 
That's right. I spend a lot of time talking to companies around when they think about moving to the cloud, because there still are companies who really haven't, as far as they understand, done much in that context. And I and I keep telling them it's not just a real estate change. You can't think of this as your VMware 1 to VMware 2 or, or even bare metal to a virtualized environment or operating system X to operating system Y, where you stand up a project team, you do that work, and then you don't have to think about it for a few years. You move into this, this environment of a truly digital workforce, and you are adopting a methodology that, by the way, the very foundation you stand on is transforming underneath you, whether you realize you've got it or not. It's also a complete inversion of your relationship to data and IT, because it used to be the data that mattered was the byproducts of your own activities. You generated it, you owned it, and so you monetized it at your discretion or not. You could do things like leveling workload across your IT stack. And so typically people would have maybe two or three times the capacity that they needed to cover their average workload for the occasional spikes at the end of the quarter. And when most of the data that matters originates from outside your organization, originates in its own good time and not at your convenience, now today you would have to own something like a thousand times your baseline capacity to handle those surges, which is why the elasticity of the cloud is now absolutely necessary and why the whole relationship you have with how value is brought to data has to be completely transformed into a completely customer experience driven point of view instead of an operational efficiency point of view. That's right. And in no time through this this continuum of adoption has that been more absolutely required than what we've experienced in the past three or so months. Well, that's, again, the problem is that people think there was a transition to the cloud. In fact, it's an ongoing acceleration, and the acceleration is not over. Pat Gelsinger at VMware said back in 2017, try to remind yourself that what's happening right now is the slowest things will be changing for the rest of your career. Nothing is not still in an acceleration phase. And you can cope with high speed. When you're sitting in a plane doing 600 miles an hour, the speed is not making itself apparent to you. But acceleration, change of direction, change of the velocity vector, that is what tests organizations. The ability to handle continuous acceleration, or maybe even more to the point, discontinuous and chaotic acceleration is the real test. And why the scalability and elasticity of the cloud model are so much more important than the cost efficiencies. Well, and so much now is expected. And it's amazing how much has happened just in the past couple of months. In fact, you know, we had a little call last week and getting ready for this. And I've quoted you like three times since then. And those three times really around everything that's happening right now, it isn't a surprise. There were plans for this. We're just doing it in two months as opposed to two years. Well, Joe McKendrick said 2025 got here 60 months early. And so many of the CIOs I talked to immediately nod their heads and and their whole body language says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm taking binders off the shelf for stuff that I've been telling them for two years we needed to do. And they've been telling me maybe in the next two years, we'll get that done. And now they're saying to me, how quickly can you get that stood up? Can you get that done by September? Can you get that done by next week? And for those who made an appropriate adoption of cloud, not only as the physical facility but also as the manner of operation and behavior of their IT over the last few years, they're able to give very good positive answers to that because for them, this is just turning the knob up to 11. 
That's right. And so when you, you go back to your previous comment around, you know, it's the acceleration that you feel. I don't believe that that leadership is going to be in any fit of a capacity or desire to decelerate. Well, no, because there's a briefing deck that's making the rounds this week because Masayoshi Son over at SoftBank did a long discussion of some of the challenges they've been through. And there's this wonderful graphic he's got of horses climbing up a hill, falling into the valley of coronavirus, but then one of them grows wings, flies out, and grows a unicorn horn. He's saying the next unicorns are waiting to be born, but they're not going to rise by climbing out of the valley. They're going to have to grow wings and fly out. And this is such a wonderful image to ask a company that feels not merely challenged, but maybe even existentially threatened. Their whole industry is now the people are saying, they're saying they'll never come back. Well, come back is the wrong idea. Fly out of the valley and discover that you've become something better is the more exciting opportunity. Turning yourself from a restaurant brand that is a place where people come to eat into a dining experience brand that's just as happy to give you an amazing evening in your own home. These are opportunities that are waiting to be seized by those who are able to see past the limits of what they know how to do and rediscover why anyone cares that they did it. That's right. That's right. Incredible. And so your title is research. So as we think about what does reopening an office look like, and we look at that through a few different paradigms. So first of all, it's, you know, right now, everybody, you know, even the companies that weren't comfortable with work from home, now that everyone is 100% working remotely, if we're all in a playing field, we've all been in the conference room where there's been a couple of folks working remotely and nobody's got their making sure they're always looking at the camera. They've got their back to them. They're not considering them as first class citizens. And so now we're all in this Zoom or Teams or WebExy type of an environment. Camera's on. We're, we're all there. So what happens when part of the, the workforce goes back to the office, whatever offices remain, hate to be in commercial real estate right now, and we think about what that transition starts to look like and how CEOs are going to start to deal with those things. Those that were more averse to people working remotely, wanted to see people in the office, felt the, build the camaraderie. You know, what, are, what are your thoughts in that space? I know a few people whose middle managers have been the obstacle to a more flexible work-from-home policy because they feel that if I can't see people in their seats, I don't know that they're working. At Salesforce, we have a thing called V2MOM for visions, values, methods, obstacles, measures. It's a thing we do every year as a company and as individuals. Everyone in the company has a written statement that they agree on with their manager and review several times a year that says, look, this is why I think my job exists these are the values that are going to constrain how I pursue it, but these are the methods I'm going to execute, the obstacles I might encounter, and the measures, crucially, the measures by which I want to be judged. And it never occurred to me before a few months ago that that framework made going to a work-from-home model so much more straightforward for us because we never had V2 moms in which someone said, my measure is my number of hours at my desk, ever. What are the measurable outcomes you're going to achieve? And once that's agreed upon, whether you're doing it from home or from an office or ideally from a customer's venue, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the more time I'm spending on customers' premises than on ours, the better. That, I think, is key. And so companies that are late to this party of replacing standard top-down, I'll tell you if you're doing a good job, management, and need to move to an, I'll tell you what I think my job is. And if you don't agree, tell me what I don't understand. But once we've agreed what 
measurable outcomes I'm supposed to produce, get out of my way and let me get my job done. And companies that can really live that are going to do quite well in this environment. And those that measure your accomplishment by the number of hours you spent where your manager could see you are not going to be able to attract and retain talent because now the people have discovered that the arguments against them working from home really didn't hold up. They're not going to work for companies that are out of date in this regard. That's right. So I think about certain roles inside of it. So you and I, from a knowledge worker perspective, we can and have and will continue to do our job wherever we're always working. We're always observing. We're always doing what we do. But when you think about a role, I'm thinking about my insurance company. I actually used to work for this company. And my brother still actually works over there as an enterprise architect. And one of their roles were these folks that we think of them as the customer service agent. They knew they were working when they could see them and they could watch the board and they could see the amount of things that were going on. And they were so concerned also with the security of that data. They had binders of reasons why that role happened in the office. And they had a lot of offices that did it, but that was why it had to happen. Of course, they, just like everybody else, sent them all home, bought tons and tons of infrastructure so that they could go do that, their own computers. They could still control that routers. I mean, so they had put the right mechanisms in place. But here was that one role that was sacrosanct that said, it has to be in the office. And you know what? Didn't have to be in the office at all. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Now, to your point, a lot of the things that are being discussed by people like you and me are people who are able to do these things from laptops from home. And this is among the reasons why I militate so aggressively against using the expression back to work, because the only reason we're able to do this is that there are people in the power plants and the telco providers and the public safety and first responders and even the grocery stores and everything else who are making it possible for the rest of us to enjoy this illusion that we don't have to show up at the office anymore. They do. And so some of the most important conversations I'm having right now are with people in the field service space or doing things like rolling to install new router capacity or rolling to make sure the electrical systems still work because we have a huge responsibility to them. They're being forced to expose themselves to contact with people and contact with otherwise hazardous environments as they always have. And so the ability to use IT to have them know what they're going to encounter before they get there so that the truck never rolls without knowing what the job's going to be, so that the first time it rolls, it rolls with people with the right tools, parts, and certifications to do the job once instead of doing one reconnoitering trip and then another trip to actually do the work. Think about the safety, governance, risk management, and, not to be mercenary about it, cost reduction opportunities that can result from doubling or tripling the productivity of a field service team. And so, so much of that is about virtual reality, augmented reality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that before were science projects, I used to call them. So somebody would say, hey, I can come to your field service organization and I can improve them by X percent. Usually it wasn't a double digit number, but they were, you know, it just sort of works and we'll just increase subscribers and different reasons. Well, you know, now that they're the only ones who can be out and safety matters and efficiency matters, all of these things just bubble up to the top of some of the most important things that these companies can do, not just to beat a competitor, but to survive, quite literally survive. Well, among the side effects of this is that being able to prove that you were exercising due diligence in the protection of your workforce and your customers is going to be really important going forward. And replacing systems in which people check a box on a paper form with systems that actually report in the moment of engagement, yes, this is what happened, this is who did it, this is how it was done, 
there are manifold benefits that this can have in every area, manufacturing, healthcare, retail, and you know, to your point about insurance, I mean, look at the things that can be done where now the customer walks around the car with their camera, takes a couple of pictures, the metadata of where they were, what's in the background, so much of that other stuff gets captured by the customer and reported in. But it's so necessary that these facilities be 24-7 everywhere and be able to handle you know peak loads. If I have a if I have a 60 car pileup, I'd better not have my systems crash just when they're needed most. And so this is again why the elasticity and scalability of these operations, as well as their geographic pervasiveness, are necessary. It's also why I moved to 5G is so important because the biggest change from 4G to 5G is not the enormous increase in bandwidth. It's the transformation of the network from dumb connective tissue along computing and storage resources into an intelligent computing fabric, some of whose functions include what we used to call networking. That's really what 5G represents, the ability to push processing as far to the edge as possible. When you look at the supercomputer you're carrying that looks like an iPhone, when you think about the computational capability that it represents and being able to push that stuff out there, and also the other way around, the observation was made that when a Tesla drives down the street and its machine vision detects a pothole and dodges around it, that's an impressive, stupid technology trick. But the fact that the next Tesla that drives down the street doesn't need to see the pothole because it already knew about it, that's the kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. And this is how most science fiction movies begin. It all started so altruistically. You know, science fiction, the good science fiction is really more about people and societies catalyzed by technology. And the bad science fiction is a narrative of people using cool tools. The discovery of fire was interesting. People figuring out that you could uh, make a business out of cooking for other people that came later. Indeed. Indeed. So as we start to think about what this return to the office looks like, you know, we're going to have to deal with stuff that we didn't have to deal with before. Because we, as we were talking earlier when we mentioned that this isn't like previous globally impacting things like a 9-11, like a financial crisis. We're not going to see a defined end to this. We're going to see a cycle of things that are going to happen. And it's a thing that is, it's not like we had a, an earthquake or a wildfire or uh, I'm in Texas. So we think about we think about hurricanes. We think now about communicable type diseases. So, you know, we can't say, hey, the office opens at eight and we'll, we'll see you then when 500 people storm the elevator. I mean, these are challenges we've got to deal with. No, the picture of the pandemic tolerant office that focuses on the architectural aspects of people sitting six feet apart with plastic partitions and so on, that's buying furniture. You just mentioned the crucial question, which is arrivals and departures bottlenecks in lobbies and elevators, scheduling of visitors, warning visitors before arrival of precautions that may be in place. That's an IT capability. It's what we're all about with what we're doing under the work.com brand. It's all about connectivity and computational capability being pushed out to the edge of the network as far as they can go. So the number of needs for physical access to a centralized office is minimized. And these are all IT capabilities. I believe in many situations, the people who are being charged with the reopening plan are from a more straightforward you know, real estate oriented office 
design mindset. And yes, there are challenges there, but having a perfectly redesigned pandemic tolerant office with boundaries that don't have the kind of control and workload management that you've just described would not be a useful thing to do. Yeah. And then you take that to the to the farthest degree. Now you grab a large metropolitan area, take a New York or Chicago, somewhere that, that relies on mass transit, that people are arriving to get on the transit. They are in motion. They are downtown. They are at elevators. They are at lunch stands. They are at what types of controls, you know, I think about the dance that's going to have to happen even between companies and scheduling when people show up. Think about a block, a city block that would need to kind of coordinate the entire arrival of that and departure of that workforce or lunchtimes for that workforce. Yeah, well, this brings together several themes that you've already raised. The need for coordination among parties who've traditionally been able to operate independently, the question of how much personal data about my movements and my level of previous virus exposure may need to become part of the organization and the choreography, if you will, of these systems. These are all things that need to be done thoughtfully. I can't remember if I used this expression already in our conversation, but someone said, be very careful of the things that are being done hastily under the umbrella of urgency because ad hoc can become bad hoc. (laughs) That's a good one. No, we didn't mention that. That's good. Okay. Well, once these things become embedded as process, you may be dealing with the legacy of something you did in 48 hours and you didn't think clearly about HIPAA implications or disadvantaged population impacts and things. And we want to be sure we don't create a whole new stratum of of unfortunate legacies of, you know, friction, rust, and gravity of our operations, we could have been thinking just a little bit farther ahead. That's right. You got to think a few clicks farther down the road. So in your estimation, when we think about, you know, what are some of the, I think you've already just called one out, and then what are the hard things we're going to have to do in the next few months? And that is, how do we not adopt something today that becomes a super big challenge for us in the future, whether that's a rights or a privacy or even a process perspective? But what are some of the other things that leaders really need to be thinking about in their organizations for how to go back to an office and what that's going to look like? The nature of the workplace going forward is going to be an acceleration of trends that have already been underway for some time. And so I can find you existence proofs of anything I'm going to discuss here. The degree to which we will expect that collaboration takes place across many channels simultaneously. I saw a really good flowchart the other day that was designed to help people avoid having too many meetings. Because when you think about it, Among the side effects of everything being done digitally is that I can now call a meeting on five minutes notice among people in five different cities, where before I might have had to plan that a week ahead. And now the opportunity to say, okay, well, let's just go ahead and get Europe, North America, and Asia on the phone together tomorrow, pick a time that's not impossible from a time zone point of view. But that doesn't mean that having a meeting was a good idea. And so having good systems for saying, okay, Could that be done by an email? Could that be done asynchronously? Does that actually require real-time meeting exposure? There are companies in which there's a very strong discipline that when you show up for the meeting, you'd better have done your pre-reading because the only purpose of the meeting is going to be negotiation and decision, and there's going to be no information sharing. And every time I've brooded that idea around in any organization, I've been told, yeah, but people don't really feel the pressure to have their, you know, their data ready or their arguments worked out until they're going to be in front of their teams. Well, I think that's a management challenge. I think the workplace of the future needs to be one in which 
your responsibilities to your coworkers start to be regarded with a little bit more rigor because now you're asking me to sit in the room with you breathing your air. And, and that's that's a that's a new social imposition that maybe it wasn't in a way. Before. You want to put my life at risk to sit in the meeting and listen to your unprepared presentation and let you read your slides to me, which I should yeah, have no, seen last night. No, no, really not. Also, everything that we know about doing major live marketing events. Obviously, Salesforce is one of the tallest poles in that tent, with Dreamforce being the world's largest single vendor event. Well, we are already actively discussing how we don't merely provide something almost as good, because that would be a very lame goal, in my opinion, but how we say, how can we transcend all of the annoying limitations of live events? Not how do we approximate what was good about them, but how do we go way beyond what was difficult about them? One of the routine problems with Dreamforce, for example, is anticipating the number of people who will show up for a session so that the appropriate sized room can be used. You know, that's maybe not so much of a problem anymore. If it turns out I've got three times the number of people who want to show up, I, I turn a knob and I've got, you know, yeah. Or we even having to think about the limitation of the number of sessions that you can have. I mean, you had artificial constraints before based on the number of rooms that were in the facility. Yes. And now we'll be able to have multiple tracks, fewer concerns about, oh, these two things are both at the same time, because now pretty much by definition, anything you can't show up for the live event, you'll probably be able to see as a recording later on. You may even be able to have two events on your screen at the same time. And when they get to the boring part of one, you can divert your attention to the other. Maybe be watching the chat streams of both of them simultaneously to decide which one you want to participate in. It's going to be an environment that certainly rewards the people who are actually good at multitasking as opposed to the vastly larger number of people who think they're good at it. Right. And really prove if multitasking is a viable solution for us at all, or if we actually can train an AI model to care about the things that we care about and let us know when a certain speaker might be on. They mention a certain topic that we care about as well becomes, becomes something I think would be really interesting to embed into the experience. The role of AI in this is a really interesting one because so many people, unfortunately, have spent the last five years becoming very excited about a piece of AI, namely you know, machine learning and prediction based on past data, that at the moment may be dangerously good at predicting the wrong thing based on what used to happen. And AI is a very big umbrella. Someone observed once that once something actually does something, we call it what it does and it stops being called AI. And so AI is the residual label for that which is, and this is a 1983 joke, that which is almost implemented. And once it actually does face recognition, once it actually does understanding of natural language, once it actually does predictive analysis, we call it that. We don't call hammers um, artificial arm extenders. We call them hammers. And in the same way, AI is a, is a power tool for a person, not a replacement for a person. So yeah, using AI well in this environment is going to be asking it to look at a situation and make predictions without being constrained by our past experience and our assumptions based on what we've tried in the past. AI is good at not having artificial preconceptions that prevent it from considering possibilities. AI is good at suggesting things and then testing them. And we have to use it creatively and not use it, unfortunately, in the way that some companies have gotten very excited about using it in the last few years to automate what they've done before, but do it more cheaply. And so the, the new thing that AI is not supposed to be is automated inflexibility. 
Right. Very good. Excellent point. So, so kind of with that, we're unfortunately hitting sort of the end of our time. Incredibly fascinating conversation, Peter. So if people want to get to know you a little bit more, where are your properties online? How can somebody go learn more about Peter Coffee? On Twitter, I'm just plain Peter Coffee, no punctuation, P-E-T-E-R-C-O-F-F-E-E. I tell people Twitter's the log file of my brain. If you want to know what I'm reading and what I'm likely to talk about the next time I'm in front of your audience, just go ahead and watch my Twitter feed and you'll have a pretty good warning. A lot of the things that I've had to share over the last few years are in my Diginomica archives. If you just Google Diginomica and my name, you'll get my author page there. That's a lot of what I share there. And then unfortunately, if you just go to YouTube and type in my name, you'll see a lot of talks I've done. We'll find you there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for uh, for spending the time with us today here on Cloud Talk as part of Rackspace Solve. Incredible conversation. Rackspace and Salesforce have an amazing relationship, and we appreciate that between the two of us. So we're grateful that that you were here today. Love to have you back in a you know a quarter's time, and we'll we'll see how many more years we fast forwarded in our digital transformation journey here. Since twenty twenty five certainly did get here. Salesforce and Rackspace are in violent agreement on just about everything that really is important in the world right now. And it's a pleasure to have had the chance to collaborate with you today, Jeff. Thank you to you and all of your colleagues. Absolutely. Thanks, Peter. Hey, and everyone, thanks for listening today to Cloud Talk. We appreciate you taking the time for it and new episodes coming soon. I am Jeff Deverter, CTO over here at Rackspace. Have a great day. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. Peter Coffey, what an amazing thinker and such a unique technology-minded viewpoint of the world. Make sure you follow him over on Twitter at Peter Coffey. I really appreciate him taking time to share a little with us here at Clown Talk. And now it's time to kill two birds with one stone. You see, our next episode is with the CTO of Rackspace Technologies, EMEA Region. But he's also a contributor and a curator of content here on solve.rackspace.com. You see, it's CTO caliber folks like Lee who are responsible for creating and curating the content that we make available for you. We spend a lot of time with our editors to provide valuable, timely content all focused on helping you and your company be successful. Now, usually there's more than one path to success. Your path will be unique to your needs and your organization's culture. That's why we've named this hub Solve. It's here to help you identify how each piece of your ideal solution should fit together. Now, I've already told you that Lee James is the guest of our next episode, where we'll talk about, of all things, the game Fortnite and how it's a model for technology team structures of the future. Check out this preview. One of our customers today, they have a great analogy, which was think small and you'll achieve big things. While it's counterintuitive, I think it's, you know, the the small pod structures today, the gamification, et cetera, really leads to um, companies being a lot more nimble and innovative in terms of getting the best out of their employees too. And that's in our next episode of Cloud Talk.